Amen. Uh, let's pray. Uh, dear God, thanks so much uh, for this awesome day, Lord. I just pray that, uh, uh, God, as we open your word, God, we can respond to it humbly. Uh, God, that we can really just see you and your love, uh, God, and just see how, how you are the hero uh, of every story, God, in, in our life. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you can be glorified through this, uh, God, and we can be humbled uh, just by your word. Uh, I love you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 So my name is Stephen Wetzel. Uh, it's the first time uh, in a couple months I've uh, preached. Uh, but amen. Uh, we're going to start off talking about something a little weird. Uh, lately, I've been reading this very, very long uh, Civil War biography, uh, and I'd be remiss if I uh, missed an opportunity to talk about history uh, with a captive audience. Uh, so, but, it, but it got me thinking, uh, you know, and, and think about this as well. You know, if, if you were going to choose a general to lead your army, say you had you had an army of uh, you know 100,000 people or something like that. You needed to pick a guy to lead those people in a battle. Like, how, how would you pick that guy? Like, what criteria would you use? What, you know, you're going through the resumes, you're going through all the CVs, all the cover letters. What are you looking for? What buzzwords are you are you trying to find to find the perfect guy to lead that army? Mm. My notes are all blown around. <laughs> Come on. Amen. I, I think, you know, first and foremost, you'd probably want them to be educated. Yes. You know, uh, it probably have a military education. Yes. You know, either at like a military college or an ROTC program or a cadet program, uh, much like Mr. Mark went through. Uh, you know, you probably want them at some at some level to have studied military theory, to have learned from the mistakes and successes of others at an academic level, right? Yes. Uh, probably someone who is very smart, uh, very intelligent to be able to you know maneuver a hundred thousand people plus supplies plus logistics, all that stuff. You'd probably look for someone who graduated at the top of their class in whatever program that was. You'd probably look for even, you know, bonus, someone who was like a child prodigy, you know, who showed like great aptitude for this sort of thing at a very early age. Uh, you'd probably want them to have experience in actual wars, fighting battles, yeah. being on front lines, taking fire. You know, you'd probably want someone who was organized, smart, and successful, even in, in their worldly pursuits. You look, okay, can this guy organize, uh, and, and is he successful at what he does? Luckily, for Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War, he found one guy who basically hit all those criteria. His name was George McClellan, which is great because he's from Philadelphia, which is where I'm from. Nice. Uh, George McClellan went to West Point at the age of 14. Wow. If you thought your kid was impressive, that's impressive. Yeah. All right. The minimum age to get into West Point was 16, and he literally had a congressman say, no, this guy's a genius, let him in two full years early. All right, and then he graduated second in his class, Ahead of dozens of people who were four years older than him, he graduated second in his class. And he's known for being extremely thorough. Extremely, he would he would think out every contingency in a battle, and he would he'd be like, "What could go wrong? Uh, what details are we missing?" He would get all the information together, come up with plans for each and every one of those things. Yeah. He's like the perfect candidate. He hits all those criteria. The thing about George McClellan was he was an absolute disaster. <laughs> all right, he was like the worst. Uh, he, the problem with him being so smart and, and thinking through all those contingencies is that the guy never got up and actually did any fighting. Like, Lincoln had to beg this guy to get up off his butt and actually go and fight Robert E. Lee. Uh, some of those battlefields are actually here in Virginia. Uh, but, like, the guy just wouldn't, wouldn't do anything. He'd just sit there in his army, like, wait until everything was perfect. And so then, like, Lee would have time to, like, entrench his forces and, like, pick the perfect spot. I'd be like, all right, we're just gonna we're gonna go, and they would get they would get beat. And even when they did win at a battle like Antietam, 
instead of following the enemy, a beaten enemy, he allowed Robert E. Lee to escape his entire army over a river without a bridge. That's pretty slow, all right? And he was like, no, we're just gonna sit back, we're gonna prepare everything, instead of pushing forward and actually doing what he needed to do. And so after a while, Lincoln fired him, which was actually really hard for Lincoln because he was very, McClellan was very politically uh, connected, but he got fired and Lincoln hired another general with similar uh, criteria, with a similar resume, same issue, wouldn't fight, couldn't get up and actually go fight the battles. And he went through like three or four generals in this way where, you know, they would either get beaten by Lee or if they beat him, they would fail to follow up on that victory. But then Lincoln hired a general out east, put him in, in, in command of the entire for, uh, armed force of the United States. And honestly, this is like the most unlikely character to lead an army. And you look at his resume, and it's probably one of these, like, this is a special man. We're just going to go over here and put this in this filing cabinet and go to the trash can. Uh, just get rid of this so we never, we don't even, we don't make a mistake by hiring this man. Because he was, he resigned from the military in the 1850s because he was constantly drunk at his post. Not something you want in a general. And failed at, like, literally everything that he did. Like, and I mean everything. The man tried farming, and, like, his crops failed. The man, the man tried to be in business, but was so disorganized that he was just like giving money away, like paying people way too much, just like not buying things, had to be like fired from his businesses. He, he tried to build his own house and the whole thing was like crooked. <laughs> uh, it's funny because he was living on his father-in-law's land and he had a house for him. He was like, no, I'm going to build my own house. And the thing was crooked. Uh, and it's great. But literally like everything he did failed. So you look at this resume and be like, no, thank you. That's okay. But we actually know this man's name. The ma man's name is Ulysses S. Grant. One of the greatest military heroes that we in our country have. This is the man that actually finally beat Robert E. Lee. Not, not the sharpest tool. He was smart, he was educated, but not, didn't graduate top of his class. He wasn't the most organized guy, but what he had, the other generals lacked. Grant was a man of action. Grant was consumed with the idea of constantly moving forward. He hated the idea of an idle army. He was like, we have a victory, let's follow up on it. We're not gonna sit around. And in the Western theater of the war, he rose very quickly through the ranks because of that one feature. Because he didn't let his enemy catch a break. He was like, everything we do is gonna be relentless. We're gonna press the enemy on all fronts simultaneously. After we beat them, we're following them. They're not gonna get a moment's night sleep. All right, and I have this quote from Grant really just kind of sums up his, his thinking. And he's being asked about this, uh, this military maneuver and this, this bold, he's, he was famous for these very bold but very risky maneuvers. And, and one, of his, uh, one of his lieutenants asked him, you know, are you sure about this? And Grant said, quote, no, I'm not. But in war, anything is better than indecision. You must decide. If I'm wrong, we shall soon find out and can do the other thing. But not to decide wastes both time and money and ruins everything. Wow. He was a man of action. And it's crazy thinking about that. Because we see like all, all of these other generals, you know, McClellan, Meade, name it, they, they had so much knowledge, but their knowledge was dead and useless. Mm -hmm. Because it was not followed up with action. Yeah. It made no difference in the war that they were highly educated. It made no difference that McClellan was known as the Little Napoleon because of his genius. It made no difference in the lives of his men, in the battles fought, and the victories won. Knowledge without action is dead and useless. 
And I think that's actually rather unfortunate uh, because when I look at knowledge and action, I really prefer one to the other, personally, in my own life. Uh, and full disclosure, I, I fantasize about days where I can, like, quote, do nothing. And it's kind of like sit and, like, read books and, like, learn things, and, like, catch up on all, like, the Wikipedia articles I want to read. Uh, and just, like, read 900-page biographies about U.S. Grant. Uh, those are the days I dream about. You know, being able to pursue knowledge. Like, I don't want to do anything, and I think even... Uh, as far as my convictions go, honestly, I prefer for my convictions to stay in the theoretical. Because I would rather think about the right thing to do than actually stand up and do the right thing. And I would like to figure out exactly, you know, prepare all of my options, like a George McClellan, and like prepare for every contingency before I go out and actually do something. But I think, you it, know, it's a lot safer that way. It's a lot more comfortable that way. I think it, it's, it's unfortunate for someone like me because action is inescapable in the gospel. Yep. It's everywhere. If you look at the way that even just like Jesus interacts with people, they are constantly called to action. You know, either he directly calls them to act, make a decision or change, or he says something so radical that they have to make a decision about whether to keep following him. Yeah. He says something so crazy, they have to be like, okay, do I want to keep doing this? Yeah. Because apparently it's going to get a lot harder. My actions are going to need to back this up. And even Jesus' main call to discipleship in Mark 8, 34. You know, we all know this. Uh, you know, Mark 8, 34, he says this over and over again. In each gospel, he says this. Whoever would be my disciple, he must deny himself, yeah. take up his cross, yeah. and follow me. Yes. And the entire, the entire idea of discipleship is based on doing something. It's based on action. And you see it everywhere in the gospel in the New Testament. Matthew 7, 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice yeah. is like a wise man who built his house yeah. in the rock. Matthew 7, yeah. 17. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Yeah. Talking about what our life produces. Mm. James 1, 22. Do not merely listen to the word, but do what it says. Yeah. Philippians 3, 13. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Yes. At a conceptual level, this this is inescapable, this idea of action. And I think our our family of churches, for those of us who have been around, I think we pride ourselves on taking this idea seriously. You know, like this 1 Timothy 4, 16 idea of watch your life and doctrine seriously. We kind of we kind of hang our hat on that and be like, okay, this is what separates us. You know, this this is what makes this movement special, that we watch our lives, that we act. And I think the danger of a lesson like this, uh, both as a speaker and as a listener, is to continue to hang our hats on that idea of like, we already got this. We already understand this. And it's easy to kind of, kind of re reject something like this. And I think the other danger is really to reject this kind of lesson on the basis of like, okay, well, we've actually moved on beyond a call of action, beyond this call of legalism. You know, beyond being told on, what bro. to do and what is best, you know, we, we have moved beyond this. Yeah. I think whether you think you've already got this covered or that you don't need a lesson like this, I think we need to take a good hard look at how the outward expressions of our hearts, you know, our actions really stack up against the Bible. Yeah. I think that's something that we, we just need to be called to do very often, yeah. you know, to really think, okay, I know your convictions, your beliefs, but what does your life say? Yeah. What do your actions say? Because I, it is so easy. It is just so easy 
to believe that living out discipleship is important, to know what we're supposed to do, and then fall short of it. It's very easy. Time and time again, you see in history, people know what they should do. McClellan probably knew he should attack Lee, but he was like, well, we've got some things we need to take care of. We've got some people that need to be like bandaged up. We need like our supply train to come in. Uh, he knew what he had to do, but didn't end up doing it. And I, I know this because I think firsthand in my own life, I see how easy it is to understand conceptually how important action is, but then not see it in my evangelism. And it doesn't match up with my convictions, not see it in how I reach out to people in the church, you know, for friendship or for confession or support, or even yeah. just to pray together. Like, knowing it's important, but still not doing it. You know, I see it in, in, in the quality of my quiet times. It's like, I know that I should spend time every day really connecting with God. Yeah. Not just having a kind of checkbox quiet time, but still making excuses, being like, oh, well, you know, I, I, I'm a little busy, you know, I've yeah. really got to get to work, you know, just making all these excuses. I think something this church does very well is really making those expectations clear. The expectations of discipleship. I don't think you can be here for very long and not have that communicated to you in some way, shape, or fashion. At least have someone offer that to you. And if you don't know what that looks like, please ask somebody to show you uh, after we're done here. I think each, like I said, each of us has to take a good, hard look at how we are actually living that out. You know, can you lead a discipleship study? And have someone look at your life as an example. Wow, come on. You know, how is your evangelism? Right. Do people at work know that you're a disciple? Do people at school know that you're a follower of Christ? You know, is seeking and saving the lost a real focus of yours? Yeah. One of your goals every day. How are your quiet times? Uh-huh. You know, do you, do you really take every time, do you take time every day to connect with God? Mm-hmm. Not just like, quote, read your Bible and pray, but to really connect right. with God. You know, how are your relationships? You know, do you put your spouse or your significant other above yourself in every way? Do yourself a favor. Don't answer that for your spouse in your head. Answer that for yourself <laughs> uh, before you do that. But I think in the same way, you know, for those of us who are not married, you know, how are your friendships? Yeah. You know, do you put your friends above you in every way? Do you actively love the people around you? Reach out to your friends to show support or just ask how their day was. You know, confess. Pray together. I think full disclosure on that front, like naturally without Jesus... I'm a terrible friend. I think, like, my, my brain is wired to, like, have, like, three friends maximum. And, like, five on a good day if I've had, like, coffee. All right? It, like, expands. And I think, like, for me, that, that's a constant challenge. It feels like I have to, like, exp- I'm constantly praying for God to just, like, expand the capacity of my heart to care for more people. And that's just one of my shortcomings. Amen for, for Jesus and the Spirit. But reaching out to people, you know, caring about them, loving people is something I feel like I'm constantly working on something I'm constantly be calling called higher uh, to do. I just want to like lift up Will Portillo. Come on, man. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Will like called me, uh, just like catch up and like see how I was doing. He was like, hey man, like I feel like we we, we just haven't like uh, gotten to catch up, you know, recently. Uh, and it's funny because like bro, like we live together. Uh, <laughs> but it was great because like he was he was like house sitting for somebody. Uh, it was I was just so encouraged. By him just like reaching out to me and just like, you know, man, I just want to know how, you, how your life is right now. Like, how, how was going home to see your family? Like, how was Philadelphia? Like, how, how is your faith? And I was so encouraged by that. You know, we underestimate, you know, how, how just little we can, we can do to just encourage people. You know, don't discredit that. But as we ponder these questions personally, I think it, it becomes clear, uh, at least for me, that a lot of the time, at least in one of these categories... You know, we think, like, yeah, I could do better in that. Like, yeah, like, my, 
my actions don't really match up to Jesus' expectations. There is more that I could be doing. Again, there's a disconnect between our knowledge and our convictions and our and our actions and the way that our lives actually play out, the outward expressions of our hearts. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it can be disconcerting to really see that because I think we like to think of ourselves as having integrity, of putting our money where our mouth is, uh, of living this out. We don't, we don't like to approach that title of hypocrite, you know, where it's like, oh, I believe this, but I don't live it out. What does that mean right, right, right. about me? I can be distressing, you know, and I think there's, there's a reason it's so hard, though. Yeah. And I think just examining my own life and looking at my own life, it's clear that the reason that I fall short is usually a combination of three things. You know, what one or more of these things? Just fear, hopelessness, and selfishness. You know, the opposite of which are faith, hope, and love. But lacking in those three things, faith, hope, and love, usually leads to me falling short in some way. And I think, you know, a few months ago, I was uh, I was sitting in my car at, uh, at JMU, uh, just in like the parking garage there, and I was praying, and a, a lot of my my shortcomings and my weaknesses had really been revealed to me at that time. Uh, and I was just kind of like praying through that, and uh, reflecting on all of that, this one realization came crashing down on me. This one realization, and, and it was, it's weird, because it was something like I knew. You know how you know something, but then like one day it actually becomes real? Yeah. And it's just like, it's not new information. Yeah. And you're like sharing it with someone, and they're like, Yeah. <laughs> But like, no, no, you don't get it. Like, <laughs> this thing, it's so real. Like, it, 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 like, for whatever reason, God can just, like, speak to us more powerfully in certain situations than others. Yeah, right, right, right. That happened to me. And I, what it was is that uh, I, I realized just how much of my life is ruled by fear. Mm-hmm. And that's not a fact that's unfamiliar to me. And I don't think it's really unfamiliar to a lot of, uh, a lot of people. I think I preach about that a lot. Side note, I didn't know I preached about that a lot. Until my mom was talking to me the other day. And she, my mom listens to all my sermons on the podcast. And she's fantastic. And she's like, Stephen, like, I didn't realize like how much of your life was just spent in like total terror until I started listening to your sermons. I was like, oh gosh, like I might I might be coming to that well a little too much. Uh, but <laughs> Amen. Like I, I know that about myself. It's one of my one of my character flaws. It's something I constantly have to work through. But for whatever reason that that reality really hit me. You know, it was something I knew, but God just chose in that moment for the weight of that conclusion to, to come down on me. And I just, like, broke down sitting in that car. You know, because I, I could just see so many ways that I had just come up short. And I had seen how, how my sin had, had caused me to not do the good that I ought, had ought to do. Yeah. I just saw so many ways just in, like, the past year how I, I, all the people I could have shared with, but didn't because of fear. But didn't because I... I was, I was afraid of being uncomfortable. I was afraid of putting myself out there. I was afraid of their response. Just the, the uncertainty of knowing how they were going to react uh, caused me to shirk back. And I, I, had, I realized just how I hadn't fought as hard as I could have for the lost, even in Bible studies. And you're just like following up with them, just building relationships with people. Because I, I, I feared opening myself up emotionally to their rejection. To them, I've seen too many people, you know, walk away from Bible studies or, or walk away from the faith. Uh, that it was just so easy to fall into self-protection mm-hmm. and to be like, I, I'm too afraid of what it's going to mean for one other person to walk away. Mm-hmm. So let, let my, I'll keep studying the Bible with them, I'll keep reaching out to them, but let me keep my heart at a distance. Mm-hmm. And even poured over into uh, you know, how, how I would go about my relationships with disciples and just being like, let me protect my heart. Let me not expend myself emotionally uh, to really give to these people. I'll give, but only up to a point. 
Uh, but then I'm, I'm going to back off because I, I don't want to be emotionally drained. I don't want, uh, you know, again, to, to have that, have that uh, fear of rejection realized. And just like a host of other things that I saw so clearly. I just saw so clearly how my, my sin, you know, my fear, my insecurity, my selfishness, it caused me to miss the mark. And I saw how it had hurt others and how it had hurt God. And like I said, it just like, it brought me to tears. Um, and the thing is, like, it's not like every day I went on the campus and just like crawled into a ball and like try not to die. Uh, but I think that's actually what made it more tragic because I, I had days where I lived differently. And I had days where I rejected those fears. And I had days where I just like shared like my pants were on fire. And I was just like, I don't even care. Like, I'm going to just go after people. I'm just going to be Jesus now. I'm going to pour myself out. And I knew how exhilarating that was. And I knew how freeing it was to walk alongside the living God in step with the Spirit. But still, on so many occasions, had given to fear. And thought to myself, God is not going to back me up. I'm out here on my own. And I'd still fallen short so many times and so often. I had this moment where I was like, what do I do? Because something has to change. And my idea at the time was actually very simple. Uh, And I was like, okay, I am going to get very good at rejecting my fears. I'm going to get very good at just rejecting selfishness and hopelessness. I'm going to train myself in my mind to realize when I'm, I'm reacting out of fear and just not. And that way I will live free. And that way I will live out of fear. And honestly, that was a great idea to me. And I think, honestly, in our heart of hearts, that can seem like a great idea. Because yeah. we're, we're confronted with this, like, this reality of, okay, I have come up short. Let me just not do that. Let me just try harder. Let me just reject this thing in my life. You know, it's, it's easy to do that, especially like when we're like, we, we see the consequences of our sin. Hurting God, hurting others, you just be like, I'm just not going to do that anymore. Yep. Yeah. Let's turn over to 2 Corinthians 5. Come on. The title of the sermon uh, today is Compelled to Act. I don't know if you picked that up. Uh, but it, it's, it's a very interesting idea for a communion. Uh, communions are often very contemplative, contemplative. Uh, and this, this idea, compelled to act, doesn't necessarily lend itself to that, but we'll give it a shot. 2 Corinthians 5, we've obviously read this a ton this year, but bear with me. 2 Corinthians 5.14 For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That's crazy right there. Not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on God's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think there's a lot here, and we've combed through a lot of this, but I think what's really pertinent here, and in the entirety of the New Testament, is actually what's absent. 
from this. And he says, you know, notice what he, he actually doesn't say here. He doesn't say, your guilt compels you. The terrible reality of how awful you are before God and the failures of your flesh compel you to live differently. Don't get me wrong. We, we all really, have, this is not like a get, get out of jail free card. Like, we all have to grapple with our sin. We all have to see that very clearly. We have to see just how far we have fallen short, how our sin hurts God, how it hurts others. But just focusing on how screwed up we are is not repentance. Right. It doesn't lead to repentance. And turn over one page to 2 Corinthians 7. Come on. Come on, bro. Verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. And godly sorrow has sorrow in it for sure. But the difference between that and worldly sorrow is that godly sorrow leaves no regret. Worldly sorrow is constantly fueled by guilt and regret in a constant state of mind. And I think what, what I was missing in that car was that the scripture actually says the love of Christ compels us. And I think what I failed to realize, uh, and this is crazy because I was actually uh, mildly proud of myself for having this like breakthrough moment in my life. And I was like, oh man, I'm going to change. Like, this is awesome. Uh, but I missed the fact that my mindset was still on myself. And my, my motivation to repent was still solely right on myself. I was like, I don't want to feel bad anymore. I, I will change. I will try harder. I will work harder so that I am not guilty. So that I can live better. And I was like, I'm going to do this by myself to atone for my own guilt and just live differently by myself. Everything about my reaction in that moment was guilt-focused and not grace-focused. And I think it's so, so easily our personal motivations to act one way or the other is not centered on this passage here. It's compelled by something else other than Christ's love. I think so easily it can be motivated by, you know, just like, like I said, being fed up with how we've come up short so much. Just making up our minds to try harder. You know, we can be compelled to act by even just being motivated by pride and like, I, I am going to uh, look good in front of these people. I'm a leader. I'm an example. So therefore, I will live up to this uh, expectation of discipleship. You know, I want, to, uh, I, I want to be someone that people can look up to in this way that people uh, will say, oh, that guy is doing so great. That sister is so spiritual. So I will work harder. You know, sometimes we can be all about action and it's just motivated out of frustration, anger, or self-righteousness. Where it's like, oh man, like they need to shape up. Their life is in sin, so I am going. I'm going to show them what I'm doing. You know, they. How, how dare they uh, do this or that? So I will. I will share my faith because of this anger, because of this frustration, because of this self righteousness. I'm going to help people because I can teach them, because I can be uh, what they need instead of Christ being what they need. And I think, you know, what we're trying to answer in this sermon is really just two questions. So what are we supposed to do and how are we supposed to do it? I think it's important to answer that second one first and this how. But luckily, in that 2 Corinthians 5 passage, both of these questions are answered. You know, all of these motivations fall short of this one thing, the love of Christ. They fall short of grace. Uh, but I, I think knowing that, again, isn't enough sometimes. You know, because I think we all know that to a certain extent. But that doesn't mean that it actually plays a role in our life. It's a hard thing to grasp, really. 
it's a very it's a very easy thing to grasp at a head knowledge. Like you can you could repeat to yourself, Christ love compels me, Christ love compels me, memorize in five different languages. Doesn't mean that Christ love compels you. Right? <laughs> Yeah, I think it's something that really has helped me gauge my my personal uh, stance in this. Uh, where I line up with that passage is something I heard uh, in a sermon by Tim Keller. Uh, and what he says, that there's a surefire way to find out if you're a true follower of Christ or whether you're just a moral and a religious person. The world has tons of moral and religious people. They're all over the place. But are you a true follower of Christ? He says, ask yourself one question. Do you feel lucky to be here? Wow. Do you feel lucky? I'm like, sometimes I feel happy to be here. I like the people. They're kind of cool. Uh, but do I feel lucky? Do I feel lucky to be a Christian? Do I feel lucky to be a disciple? I think this, this question really hits at how much we see the love of Christ. And ask yourself this question. Dwell on it. Because I think to really, really be in a place where you feel lucky to be a Christian, you have to see your sin. You have to have those moments where it's like, I am hopeless. What do I do? That we have to see just like, oh my gosh, like without God, I am messed up. Yeah. I can't do anything right. Me too, bro. We can't do anything right without Christ. And we have to see that. But on the flip side of that, we cannot dwell there. Yeah. Because then it's just like, what was me? What was me? What was me? I don't feel lucky at all. I feel like trash. I feel like I, I don't deserve anything. And it's true. We don't deserve anything. But the opposite side of that is the love of Jesus. Yeah. The opposite side of that is that God sees exactly what we see in high definition. Like 1080p. Uh, like 3D glasses, like he sees it better than we do. He sees how 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 messed up we are, but he says, I am going to die for you. Mm-hmm. See this person who doesn't even believe in themselves? I believe in them. I'm, I'm going to give everything for them. I find worth in them. Yeah. I am proud of them. I am going to pour myself into them. You know, and once we see that height of the love of God, you know, God, God allows us to walk alongside him. Jesus' yeah. death allows us to walk alongside the living God in mm-hmm. total freedom. Mm-hmm. Do you feel lucky yeah. for that reality to be part of your life? Yes. And if that's not part of your life, talk to somebody. Get, get, yeah. get that in your life. You know, feel, feel lucky in that way. You know, and when I, when I heard that question, I was, I was impacted because I realized, I was like, man, I feel so entitled to be in God's love. Uh, blessings come my way and I'm like about time I've been suffering here for a while this has been coming my way for a real long time I get frustrated when things don't go my way I you know I I think often I fall short of really dwelling in this reality of my life uh, that I am truly blessed to just be a disciple just truly lucky to be able to act alongside God to be compelled by his love I just have two quick points in closing out here. And the first one we've kind of been talking about, you know, first one, act out of love. Or act because of love. Act because of love. Every single motivation you have is going to come up short if it's not based on this reality. If it's not based on you, you just being blown away by how lucky you are to be standing in the shadow of God. Wow. It's going to fall short. And it might work for a little while. I think after that, that time in that car of like weeping, I, I, I was a little better. <laughs> I did go after things a little bit more, but it fell short. It was inconsistent. My motivation wasn't there. Uh, you know, it's only when we have our eyes fixed on that incredible love that we're actually able to live this out consistently. That our actions in these in these areas are going to be permanent. Because honestly, with this all with with the love of Christ in view, all the concerns that we have just shrink away. 
You know, Hebrews 12, 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning and shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition to sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Mm. Everything pales in comparison. There's nothing that we are going to suffer is going to compare to the sufferings of Christ. Even a little bit. And Christ suffered to endure to give us another chance to live a free life. And something I've been trying to work into my character is just making decisions based on this love. Uh, to, cl- to clearly see it every day. Uh, you know, but it takes a daily struggle it, it, to really see this. That's why quiet times are so important. Yeah. You know, like, I do not ever, no, no day, three, like zero out of 365 days a year, do I wake up and I'm like, I am inspired by the love of Christ. It's just not honestly like something that I'm just like, I'm like rearing and ready to go. I need to prepare myself, like gird my loins and like uh, the love of Christ every day. It's a fight sometimes. But are we willing to do that? Are we willing to wake up every day and set our minds on that love? Yes. Be compelled to act based on that crazy love. Okay. We're going to close out 1 John 3. Come on. Come on. Let's go, bro. The second point is act in love. Act in love. 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. I think after, after we really see the love of Christ, everything just becomes very simple. If that is truly our motivation, the dust settles and the path forward becomes very, very clear. And that's good because this is so helpful for me because it's so hard for me to keep in mind all the details of living out discipleship. It's so hard for me to keep in mind like, okay, focus on having a great quiet time. Focus on praying all the time. Focus on calling disciples and building them up. Focus on sharing my faith all the time. Focus on sinning or not sinning in these 22 different areas. You know, it's like, it's a lot to keep on your mind, all these details. But what is so powerful is the gospel is just like, Christ has loved you, go and do likewise. And all of this just falls into place. And if we can clearly see the love of Christ, just pass that on. Love God and love others. We're called to really just do one thing in response to this. Live selflessly. Stop living for ourselves. I said Christ died uh, so that we could not stop living for ourselves and start living for him. Living for others. I, all we have to do is have compassion for one another. And th- th- this is a this is a point that uh, Andy Andy Fleming uh, made in a sermon that I was listening to the other day. Uh, he used to lead the church in Birmingham, England, but he he made the point that faith, you know, in that passage where it says, "In these three remain faith, hope, and love," but the greatest of these is love. And sometimes it's kind of weird. It's like, why why is love actually the greatest of these things? But the way Andy was explaining, he was like, one day. We are going to be faithless and hopeless. And that's deceitfully discouraging. <laughs> because one day, if we're on the right side of salvation, your faith is going to be fact. Everything you could have hoped for will be here. It will be a, you're going to be faithless and hopeless. But what's going to remain? Love. Love. Love is God here and now. Yes. Love is how God interacts with us here now. We have the opportunity 
to do that for other people. The greatest of these is love because that is God. You know, if we have love for God and for others, all of those details are going to work themselves out. It, it's going to be easy. Like, I'm going to have a quiet time because I love God. And I can see so clearly how he's poured himself out to me and how I want to pour myself out to him. I'm going to pray with newfound passion and conviction and vigor because I trust God with my entire heart because of his love. I'm going to call people and build them up because I know how much Christ has loved me. I'm going to love other people. So I, I can I can try to pour into them as I have been poured into because I'm overflowing. I have more than enough emotional energy to give to others because I'm sustained by God. I'm going to share my faith because I want to show these people the love of God and its compassion uh, and his compassion. I'm going to flee from sin because I don't want to hurt the God who has poured himself out to me, who has died for me, who, who, who's, whose blood is shed every time that I sin. You know, and having that motivation, that, that is really true freedom. That, that's guilt-free living of just loving others because Christ has loved us. That's what's going to be consistent. That's going to be walking alongside in step with the living God. Amen. Now, as we close out here, you know, as before we take the bread and the juice, I... Uh, I think it's worth circling back to that. Christ acted in compassion. Yeah. Christ was compelled by, by the love of God, you know, his own love. But instead of leading to freedom, it led to his enslavement. Jesus was chained because of his compassion. Jesus was led where he did not want to go. Jesus was flogged because he loved us so much. Jesus, Jesus looked forward to a, a horrible, a horrific, awful death. Why? Because of compassion. And why? So that we can do the same and experience freedom in him. So that we are set free by his blood, by his compassion. Yes. And we are set free to act by that blood. And uh, I just encourage us to reflect on that and just encourage us to reflect, you know, how, how can I be motivated by this love? How can I focus on this more throughout the week? How can this inform my decisions, my actions, the outward expression of my heart? How can that be informed by Jesus' love? And amen. Let's pray. Come on. Uh, dear God, I just thank you so much, uh, Lord, just for your love, uh, for God, just giving us everything we could ever need or ask for or imagine, God, how you have freed us to act, God, how we don't have to be enslaved by fears or insecurities or, or faithlessness, God, uh, how, how you have just freed us to walk in step with the fear, God, and just how, how amazing and exhilarating that is, God, and we don't deserve any of that. God, I pray that we can really connect with that fact this week, today, you know, for the rest of our lives. Uh, Lord, and I just pray that we can humbly approach the cross in this moment. Uh, God, just, just rejoicing and being thankful for the victory that Jesus has uh, won for us, uh, God, by his death. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.